Psalm 32 is a psalm about forgiveness. Some feel this is a companion psalm with Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51 clearly is a psalm that speaks of uh, David's sin with Bathsheba when Nathan the prophet confronted him. Uh, This is a psalm of the blessedness of forgiveness. Um, Again, most likely in response, uh, as many see it, to David's sin with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And so let's go ahead and read through uh, the psalm in its entirety. Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The blessedness of the forgiven. As we see in the title, this is a Psalm of David, and then it says it is a contemplation. The Hebrew word is maskel, and the word is used 14 times in the book of Psalms. 13 times it's translated contemplation. One time it's translated as understanding. The idea seems to be that of concentrating on what is being spoken, the concentration being on spiritual things. Psalm 32 is also referred to as a wisdom psalm or a teaching psalm to be instructed by what we read here. And of course, the thing that we see is the forgiveness that God gives when a person repents from their sin. And as I mentioned, a number of people feel that this is companion with Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's cry to God after his sin with Bathsheba and, of course, the subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And this psalm, as we go through it, we we see that the relief, if you will, of having been freed of that guilt that he had been carrying and, and of course, then forgiven for his sin. It starts off, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. The word blessed means, oh, how happy. (laughs) Oh, how happy the person. And notice again the idea of the Hebrew poetry, the rhyming not of words, but the rhyming of thoughts as 
he's laying thought after thought before us here. So blessed is he who's, notice, transgression, sin, and iniquity. Transgression, sin, and iniquity that is forgiven, that is covered, that is not imputed, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So you see how he's kind of multiplying the thought there of the sin that he had done. The word transgression, it speaks of a, a rebellion. The word sin, oftentimes we'll hear the word sin defined as missing the mark. And my understanding is it was a term in archery where the, the target would be set up and then the archer would shoot for it. And if the archer missed the target, then he sinned. And so the idea is missing the mark. And the mark, of course, is God's standard a perfection. It's God's law. And so when we break God's law, when we miss that mark, we've sinned. And the last one that he speaks of, of iniquity here, it speaks of a, a perversity or a depravity. And that's, that's basically the nature of man since the fall, that we are, we are depraved people and so forth. As he speaks of the transgression being forgiven, the word forgiven has the idea of being taken away. In other words, I've transgressed, I've rebelled, but forgiveness has come. And so I, I am no longer going to be held accountable, if you will, for that sin against God. I'm no longer going to be judged by God by that. Rather, it's been taken away. In Psalm 103, verse 12, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So the removal of the transgression. When he mentions the sin being covered, a number of people see that as the covering of the sacrifice in the sacrificial system. So uh, having been atoned for, God's justice being satisfied. And then of course, when we get to the idea of the iniquity not being imputed, the word imputed is, is like an accounting term. It's like having something credited to your account. So you, you have your account and then the sin that you've committed is not credited to that account. The idea, again, is it's removed. And so you're free from that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, it says God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Notice, not imputing their trespasses to them. God was in Christ. When Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to this earth, he is God in human flesh. And here God isn't going to each person and going, you're a sinner. I'm going to credit to your account your sin and you're going to be judged by it. Rather, he was not imputing their sin to him. Rather, he came to deal with the issue of sin. And that's what verse 21 says. It says, for he made him who knew no sin, he, God, made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin. For us. The NIV, I think, translates that to be the sin sacrifice for us. The idea is, is he bore our judgment, the judgment that we deserve. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, notice, in him. As a believer in Christ, we then have a right standing with God, all because of what Jesus has done for us. And as we look at this psalm here, we're speaking about the blessedness of forgiveness. We've been forgiven. And David, of course, would know this all too well. 
In Romans chapter four, where the apostle Paul is speaking about justification by faith. And the idea here is again, forgiveness, not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Justification to be declared innocent, no longer guilty. Justification by faith, Romans chapter four. Paul is using Abraham as the example to show that he had a right standing with God, not by the works of the law, nor by the covenant sign of circumcision, but simply by faith, trust in God. Because Abraham was declared right in the eyes of God before the law of Moses and also before the covenant sign of circumcision. It simply says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's what gave him a right standing with God, trusting in God. So Paul uses Abraham as an example of justification by faith. And then he uses David as an example of how blessed it is to be forgiven, to be justified by faith. And he quotes the two verses that we have before us. Psalm 32 verses one and two in Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four verses five through eight. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God, notice, imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So again, get the idea of the account there. What does God do? He's not crediting to our account sin and the judgment that would come, but what is he crediting? He's crediting righteousness, a right standing with God because we're really good, because we tried really hard, because of faith, because of belief in God, who he is and what he's done. And again, oh, how happy for that. It's interesting to note, and Nelson's commentary points this out, that the book of Psalms begins with the same word, blessed, right? Blessed is the man who, what, doesn't live like the sinner, but what does he do? He meditates in the law of God. And what does he become? He becomes prosperous. So for the, for the person who's going, okay, I'm not gonna go the way of the sinner. I'm going to go the way of the Lord. Oh, how happy is that man? That's how the book of Psalms starts. So we come here to Psalm 32. Oh, how happy is that man who has gone the way of the sinner, but now is forgiven. Isn't that cool? So we, we all know what that's like to go the way of the sinner. And this is a blessing to be forgiven and a blessing as the book of Psalms starts to go the right way, but when we've gone the wrong way, and this is the deal, when we repent, it is then that we can get right, get our lives on the right track with God. And so the coolness here, the blessedness, if you will, of the forgiven. David being the example that we see before us. And so we look at verses three and four, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. Now, this is a word, Selah, that is used 74 times, 71 of them here in the book of Psalms, three of them in Habakkuk, where it's a prayer of Habakkuk, so it's like a psalm. And just like uh, in the title where it says a Psalm of David, a contemplation, the Hebrew word is maskel, and it's being translated into English as contemplation. 
Here in our text where it says selah, that's what it is in Hebrew. So that's the Hebrew word selah. It's what's called a transliteration where it's, it's just brought into English with the same pronunciation, basically the same spelling. And the idea of the word, and this is the reason I say idea is, is people are, are not 100% certain exactly what it means, but, but some would say it's a musical term that perhaps it indicates a pause in the lyric for a musical interlude. And so we've sung the chorus and now we're going to pause as the guitar gives us a little fill here and then we'll get back. I think the idea as we go through it, I, I, I get the idea of a pause, but I think it's a pause to, like it says, a mescal, a contemplation, to think about what we've just read, to, to ponder that, to meditate upon that. And as we look at verses three and four, we can see as, as David is recounting and he's saying, you know, when I kept silent, and I think the idea is I did not take action uh, on my sin. I was holding it in. I was trying to get away with it. When I did that, I was being eaten up inside. My bones were turning into an old person. How many of you know what that's like? Okay. <laughs> he was achy inside. Okay. It, it says through my groaning all the day long, the word groaning speaks about the roar of a lion or screaming. It's like inside the guilt that's, that's eating him up. And my vitality, the life within me, was turned into the drought of summer. Again, many feel this is hand in hand with Psalm 51 and David's sin with Bathsheba. It's recorded back in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David did not go out with the army when the army went out to fight against the Ammonites. He stayed home. And one night he was on the roof of his house and he looked down to the roof of another house and he saw a woman there bathing and she was beautiful to behold. So David inquired, who is this woman? And the answer came back, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's 30 mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. And by the way, her dad is Eliam, also one of the 30 mighty men of David. And so David said, bring her to me. And David slept with her and she became pregnant. Then she brought word to David, I'm pregnant with your child. And so David's in a mess. What am I gonna do now? So he lays out plan A, I'll bring Uriah back. I'll see how the battle's going. And then he'll go down B with his wife. Case closed, problem solved. But Uriah is a faithful warrior. He's a very noble man. And after he gives David the report, rather than going to his house, he goes and he sleeps at David's fort, uh, footstep on his porch where the servants are sleeping. And when David comes and says, what are you doing? Why didn't you go to your house? He said, Joab, the commander, and the whole army is out there sleeping in the field in the battle. Can I go home and be with my wife? And so he stayed there. Plan A didn't work. Time for plan B. So the next day, David gets him drunk, thinking he's drunk. He's going to go home and be with his wife. What does Uriah do? He goes to the porch of David and he goes to sleep because he's a noble man. He's a faithful man. Plan A, plan B did not work. Time for plan C. And plan C, David writes a note to be carried by the hands of Uriah the Hittite to Joab the commander. Set Uriah in the forefront of the battle where the hottest fighting is and then withdraw from him so that he's struck down and he dies. Plan C worked. Uriah was killed. Other soldiers were killed as well during that time. Word comes back, Bathsheba finds out, Bathsheba mourns. And then David, being the 
benevolent king that he is. He went and, and took this widow of one of his 30 mighty men and married her and brought her into his household. And so now the baby that comes will be thought to be his rightfully because he married her. Plan C worked, didn't it? You know, you come to the end of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, and it says this thing was displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. David is referred to as a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't perfect, was he? In fact, David committed probably what we would consider the two worst sins there are. When we look at the Ten Commandments, we think about we shouldn't lie. Oh, it's just a little white lie. Oh, we shouldn't steal. It was just, you know, it wasn't really much. Oh, it was just a little murder or it was a little adultery. We don't look at it that way, do we? We look at those are really bad sins. And here this man after God's own heart fell into sin like this. God loved David so much, he wasn't gonna leave him in his sin. And so as we read through these verses, verses three and four, as this time is going on, David isn't just going about business as usual. He's dying inside because of what he's done. God in his faithfulness sends him Nathan the prophet, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And Nathan just shows up and begins telling a story. There was a man who had one little ewe lamb. And his neighbor was very rich and he had multiple lambs. And then this visitor came to the neighbor and the rich man, rather than taking one of his lambs and presenting it for a meal, he took the poor man's only little lamb and presented it as a meal, butchered it and served it. And David said, that man shall surely die and he shall repay fourfold for what he's done. And Nathan said, you are the man. And then he began to speak for the Lord. He was a prophet and he began to say, I gave you everything. I gave you the kingdom. I blessed you so much. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you much more, but you've gone and you've stolen Uriah's wife to be your own. And you had him put to death by the sword of the Ammonites. Therefore, the sword is never going to depart from your house. And David said, I have sinned. See, this is where David is a man after God. This is where David becomes an example for us. You know, rather than, and admittedly, you know, he, he was holding on to this for at least nine months, right? Because the judgment that God brings upon him is the death of the child. And so it's at least nine months that, that he's carrying this thing. But when he's confronted with it, he doesn't try and make excuses. He doesn't try and say it was her fault. She should have never been out on the rooftop. He owns it, doesn't he? He says, I have sinned. And Nathan responded, and the Lord has forgiven you of your sin, you shall not die. However, there will be consequences and there were consequences in David's life. See, the blessedness of forgiveness is we can get our lives right with God, but we're still gonna deal with the consequences. Wisdom would tell us to think it through, to think it through hard before it takes place. Remember when David said, that man shall surely die? Well, God forgave him. You, you won't die. But remember when he said, he shall repay fourfold to the man. He took the lamb. He needs to give him four back. Well, David lost that son that Bathsheba had, had carried. But then he lost three more sons. He lost Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah all by the sword. And really, when you read through 2 Samuel, David's life, it really wasn't the same after that, was it? I mean, he's still a man after God's own heart. He still loves the Lord. God's still working in his life. But I, what it says, says to me is sin, it messes us up. Can we be forgiven? Absolutely. That's what this psalm is about, the blessedness of forgiveness. 
But man, we need to, we need to really think before we act because it can mess up our, the, our, the entirety of the rest of our life. And so we, very important to think that through. So as this year is elapsing, and this is what I see right here, is David saying, my bones are growing old, groaning all the day long. And so you think about what was going on during this time period as he's living in this guilt until he's confronted with it. And you can see that, that the guilt is coming from the Lord, if you will, if I can word it that way. In verse four, he says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. I think God loved him so much that God wasn't gonna allow him to be comfortable in his sin. And I think this is the blessedness of being a child of God is that God is faithful to chasten us when we get off track. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses five and six, it says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves. He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. I tell you what, if we don't have guilt in our lives because of our sin, something's wrong. You know, if we're comfortable in our sin and we're not thinking anything about it, we need to check our lives with the Lord and, and see where we really stand. And so here in David, again, he, he's just shrinking in his guilt. But then we come to verse five. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. Let me, let me read that verse in the New Living Translation. My iniquity, I have not hidden. New Living says, finally, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. That's how the New Living interprets slash translates verse five. So I acknowledged my sin to you, my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah, pause and think on that. God's goodness in his forgiveness based on what? On David acknowledging, on David confessing. And that really is the key to this is confession. In Proverbs 28, verse 13, it says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. If you try and hide it, you're not gonna be blessed. But if you forsake them, you'll experience the mercy of God. Notice 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, the word confess means to say the same thing. It means to agree. God, you said adultery is wrong. God, you said murder is wrong. I agree with what you said. I have sinned, I have done the wrong thing. And as we confess, notice he is faithful and he is just to forgive and to cleanse us. And this again is what we're talking about is the blessedness of being forgiven. For we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God and we all seem to carry that guilt until we confess it and then we can be forgiven and have that peace within our hearts. Confession results in forgiveness. So then it turns to instruction here. Verse six, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. For what cause? Well, for the forgiveness and the peace and the joy that comes. Everyone who's godly shall pray to you. Notice in a time when you may be found. What is that suggesting? That God could not be found? 
that God would be hiding? Or could it be suggesting that we're no longer looking, right? Remember Adam in the garden? What did he do after he'd sinned? He, he hid himself. He hid himself from the Lord. So when we're in a position, and I, and I think of this, a time where God may be found, when we're in a position where our hearts are, are tender, they're ripe to come to the Lord, we need to act on it. Because if we, if we subdue that, then who's to say we're gonna get in that position again? And that's, again, the only way we can get our lives right with God. The only way a person can get their life right in salvation, and the only way we can get our relationship right with the Lord as a believer when we have gone the wrong way. So in a time when you may be found, in Isaiah chapter 55, verses six and seven, it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God is for us. He's not against us. Our part when we've fallen is to repent, to confess our sin and to come back to the Lord. And God is there like the father of the prodigal son with his arms open wide, amen? The son just needed to come to his senses, turn it around and come back and repent before his father. And so in a time when you may be found, he says, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. And then you are my hiding place. You can probably tell why we sang that song this morning. You are my hiding place, my refuge, my place where I can go and be protected. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I wanted to speak just a moment on songs of deliverance. This stuck out to me as I read through it this week. And I I thought about the songs that were sung after God had brought, uh, uh, worked a great work in the lives of his people. I think of the song of Moses, when Moses had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And, uh, you know, God was doing that through the 10 plagues to where Pharaoh finally just said, get out of here. And he drove the children of Israel out. But as they're leaving, Pharaoh changes his mind. Uh, This is our slave force. Let's go get them back. And so Pharaoh and the Egyptian army begin pursuing the children of Israel. And the children of Israel come to the Red Sea. And so they're hemmed in. There's nowhere to go. What does God do? He parts the waters. And it says that Moses and the children of Israel went through the midst of the Red Sea on dry ground. That was not a natural phenomenon. That was a supernatural work that God was doing because it says that he went through on dry ground with walls of water on both sides as they're going through. And, and God is giving the victory to where they come through and the Egyptian army as they're following, God brings the Red Sea down upon them. So what does Moses do? He sings a song. Let's sing a song about this, okay? God's great deliverance. And that's Exodus chapter 15, verses one and two. And I also put in verse 11. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, the miraculous, 
So Moses writes this song we read, I think it's Judges chapter five where Deborah and Barak also sing a song because of the Lord's victory over Sisera and the Canaanites. And David, of course, wrote multiple Psalms. Psalm 18 is where it says he wrote this after God had delivered him from all of his enemies and from the hand of King Saul. And so these are, these are songs of praise for, for God's triumph in, the, in his life. And then finally, at the end, the tribulation period where everything is wrapping up, Jesus is about ready to return. It says in Revelation chapter 15, verses two and three, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. The song of Moses, as we saw it, was a song of deliverance, wasn't it? A song of triumph. The song of the Lamb, what did the Lamb do? How did, how did, how did we get victory there? It was Calvary, wasn't it? It was where he laid his life down so that we can have life. It's interesting to note that Jesus and the disciples were celebrating the feast of Passover on the night that he was betrayed. The feast of Passover is what? It's celebrating what we just talked about, the Exodus, where God is bringing Israel by the hand of Moses out through the Red Sea in triumph and so forth. And so this would become the greatest deliverance of all, not just from an Egyptian bondage, but this would come from the bondage of sin that leads to death. In Revelation chapter five, when nobody is found worthy to be able to take that scroll and loose its seals, the lamb. The lamb was able to come, and so a song was sung. Revelation chapter five, verses nine and 10. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. The song of Moses, the song of triumph, the song of deliverance, the song of the lamb is the song of redemption. He's laid his life down so that we can be purchased back to him. Oh, you guys, the blessedness of forgiveness in salvation and also when we mess up as believers, the blessedness of that. So sing a song to the Lord. Thank him for what he's done, his forgiveness, his redemption, his triumph in our life. Verse eight, this is where the voice is changing where, where David is speaking prophetically. It's like it's the Lord speaking in verse eight, where he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. It's like as you look at this progression, the guilt of sin, but then the confession and the resulting forgiveness and then the joy, but, but now the guidance that we can see coming from this. And so again, many people feel that this is the Lord speaking at, at this stage, saying, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. I think that speaks of relationship, you know, how people can just look at each other and have an, you know, you know what the other person is saying, you know, and I, I know spouses have that a lot, 
right? We can just look at each other and don't have to give a little flinch or anything. You just kind of look and, and you know, maybe by how long the stare is going, what, you know, what the other person is thinking. And I, I, I think that's because of relationship, because, you know, we know each other so well. And that's what I read right here where God, you know, I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to guide you with, with my eye because there's that close fellowship. Do not be, verse nine, like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. So here it's saying, don't be stubborn, basically, like the horse, like the mule. When I think of the horse, I think of that which would run ahead. I think of being uh, impatient before the Lord. It's like, I gotta see something happen. I'm gonna run ahead of God. Don't be like the horse. The mule I see digging the heels in. I ain't doing it. I ain't going, you know, being stubborn and so forth. And, and notice again, the, the main thing I saw in that is they're not going to come near. So it's the opposite of relationship there. So there's not a connection between them and the Lord. Proverbs 26.3 says a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back. So I think in a sense, don't be a fool. You know, don't be, don't be separated from God, but rather Again, confession, make it right. Come near to the Lord so that relationship is there and guidance and instruction can be there. Verse 10, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Notice again the parallel thoughts that are going through here. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy, the blessedness of being forgiven. Going back to David for a moment. As I mentioned, David's life was tough after that point. But when we look at God's goodness in his life, it's just overwhelmingly amazing. If we were God, would we say to David, Okay, I'm going to forgive you, but Bathsheba, off limits, right? I mean, wouldn't we say that? Okay, you know, you stole her, you killed her husband, you cannot have her anymore. You need to take care of her, but you cannot have her anymore. Bathsheba's off limits. I think that's what I would do. Rather, what happens is they end up having another son, and his name is Solomon. And he becomes one of the greatest kings that ever lived. I think Israel knew its zenith during Solomon's reign, peace and and the largeness of the kingdom during that time. And we see such blessing come upon this, this product of David and Bathsheba once he got his life right with God. Check this out in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son and he called his name He called his name Solomon. So the Lord loved him and he sent word by the hand. I'm going to do it like this, okay? Nathan the prophet. <laughs> so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. God loved the product that came from David and Bathsheba once David got his life right with God. This is grace, you guys. Do you want your life to be blessed? Do you wanna have the favor of God in your life? Here is the solution. Confess 
and be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the time we could spend in your word, Lord, and I thank you how it communicates so clearly your nature, who you are, your heart for your people. And Lord, I just pray as we leave this place, we would be able to rest in your love for us. And Lord, I pray also that we would be instructed by the truth that we see here, that we can be blessed when we get our lives right with you. I pray if there are any that are, that are listening that have not come to you and repented of their sin, to ask you to forgive them and to receive Christ as their Lord, that they would do that and recognize the blessing that comes from that. And I pray for all of us, if there's any issues in our life, Lord, that we would get it right with you, that we would forsake the sin and be able to experience your abundant pardon and favor in our lives, oh God. We are so thankful. Lord, may you be honored in our midst all the days of our life, oh God. We love you so much. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen.